Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, the place where we analyse everything and anything to do with Australian politics and more. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud and YouTube, or you can go straight to our website at newpolitics.com.au. In this episode, we look at Budget 2018, the UN Human Rights Inquiry into the Israeli attacks on Palestinians, and we ask the question, will there be an early election? I'm Eddie Djokovic, the editor of New Politics. And I'm David Lewis, a historian, musician, lecturer, and general dog's body. Now, as usual, there's always a lot of things going on in Australian politics, and we had the Budget 2018 announced recently. There were tax cuts, forward estimates, budget replies, figures flying all over the place, but I blinked and now it's gone, as though it never really happened. What is the real point of the budget in Australian politics? Well, from a technical point of view, it is how they're spending the projected income and managing the projected debt over the next 12 months. From the government's point of view, I'm not quite sure what they wanted to achieve with this one. It's not really an election-winning budget. In the context of a Royal Commission in which the banks aren't coming out well of, offering a $17 billion tax cut seems to me to be completely almost suicidal. Well, I agree with you that it would be suicidal to offer a tax cut of $17 billion to the banks. And this is in the overall context of a somewhere between 65 and $80 billion of uh, corporate tax cuts over the next 10 years. Now, that figure seems to keep going up and up and up. But you're absolutely right. You're not going to win an election in this current climate if you're giving a $17 billion tax cut to banks. But are there other things that they might be looking at, such as being able to create a narrative based around surpluses and tax cuts? I think that the narrative for surpluses is slowly dying. It was a big uh, feature of the Howard government, and Howard went to uh, two or three elections even, saying, we are the only party who will deliver a surplus, and a surplus is a good thing. Um, Of course, he gave most of that surplus away in middle-class tax cuts. And I believe they were probably still paying for those tax cuts that were offered during the Howard era. We, we absolutely are. And of course, Howard didn't have a bad world economy. I think the recession had ended by 96 when he got in. And the next major recession was the GFC in 2008, which of course was managed by the Rudd government then. I think when we look at this budget, it, it is a typical Turnbull stroke Abbott government budget insofar as it seems to try to want to have a narrative has an element of poor political judgment. And we'll get back to the role of Scott Morrison, the treasurer, who I think is one of the more disappointing treasurers of of the modern era. Well, to me, he seems to be more of a salesperson rather than an actual treasurer. He hasn't actually got an economic background. Now, that's not that's not a huge impediment to actually being the treasurer. Paul Keating famously didn't have an economic background. Peter Costello also didn't have a, an economic background. But those two treasurers actually work quite well in, within the Australian political context. So that in itself, not having the economic background, doesn't really mean that much. It does help, I will admit. But my feeling is that Scott Morrison doesn't seem to know too much about economics. I think that's right. Keating famously, once he got into Parliament, started hanging around Treasury in a big way, meeting after meeting after meeting, learning how the mechanics of the Treasury went. And he 
fell in with a crowd of people who were very close to what he was thinking and he wanted, of course, that more free market idea that the market ultimately could solve everything. Now, Keating would argue that you needed to manage the market a little bit as opposed to, say, John Howard, who at heart would have said the market will run itself. Keating learned a lot from Treasury. I think Costello spent a lot of time with many of the same public servants learning the job. I don't know if Morrison has spent a lot of time listening to the details of Treasury. It's not a budget that seems to have a, an understanding of the world outside its own world. Well, the role of the Treasurer is to announce the budget, of course, and to, to sell the budget as much as possible. So it's all about political messaging. And the key things that I gained from the, from the budget was the return to surplus. That's a big narrative that they want to push. And tax cuts. That's another big narrative that they want to push. And my feeling... Getting more money with less. That's right. And my feeling is that they could have offered... per week in a tax cut, but it was all about just sending out the message that the Liberal Party and the National Party, they are the parties of tax cuts. And that's the narrative that they wanted to push forward. And also a surplus, a budget surplus of $2.5 billion is predicted for the 2019-20 year. And that's also another message that they want to keep pushing. And strangely enough, government debt has not featured at all in this budget. And... After howling down the Rudd and Gillard government for, I think it was a $350 billion debt, somewhere around that, might have been a bit more, the current government debt is somewhere around $720 billion or $730 billion. They've, they've effectively doubled the debt in the last four years. Yes, and quite, and quite often a feature of Liberal National parties in opposition is the famous or infamous, depending on your perspective, the debt truck that they always seem to wheel out around election time. So in 2011, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, in his role as Shadow Communications Minister, he was driving around in his debt truck, announcing that there was a $300 billion government debt at that time. And that was announced quite often in the lead up to the 2013 election. We also had the budget emergency, but I haven't heard the words budget emergency or national government debt for some time. No, and the strategy seems to be, when in doubt, kick into the poor. We haven't had a, and this is on both both sides of politics, we haven't had a pay rise in unemployment benefits since 1994, um, which of course is a massive cut in, in income. We've had meagre rises in the pensions. We've had meagre rises in disability, and it's harder to get disability pensions. Now, you could take all these things singly and say, well, there are reasons, and maybe disability pensions should be hard to get to prevent rotting of the system, to make sure that the people who need to get it, etc., etc. But put all together, it seems that they're cutting little bits to hide the fact that they've not managed the economy as well as perhaps the other side may have done. Forward estimates, of course, are one of those things that you say, I think it it keeps journalists happy because it makes them sound smart. And if you're not terribly good at the job, though, they're pretty much meaningless. The idea of forward estimates, that's actually been around for maybe about four decades or so, ever since the early 1970s. And that that to me makes sense. You not only produce the budget for the next 12 months, but you take into account the cycle after that, the next three years after 
the next financial year. So that's looking at a cycle of around four years. Over over time, the forward estimates has been used as a bit of a smoke and mirror type of trick where figures are dodged around the place, they move from year to year, and that type of, type of factor, which means that a, a budget announcement or a surplus announcement of $2.5 billion in the 2019-20 year, who knows what will happen there? Because does it contain figures from the following year or the year before or five years time. So it's a little bit dodgy, but taking figures 10 years in advance, well, that's even even more dodgy. Given that there will almost certainly be a change of government, whatever your opinions of the government, not many Australian governments last more than two or three terms. When with three-year terms, we're talking eight to nine years, really. We, the Howard years were an outlier. The Hawke years were an outlier, but mostly... It's about every eight years. And does he really expect that an incoming government that's not his will keep the same policies that he has? And does he really expect that even that if they're still in, that circumstances will still be the same? It was an odd thing for a man who's meant to be this crack salesman, as you pointed out earlier, to try and sell just doesn't stand up to very much scrutiny. So the budget probably had about two or three days of clear passage through the airwaves and the media, and then it was all, all of a sudden it was gone. It was out of the picture because a couple of days after the budget was announced, there were four resignations from Parliament. And this is due to the High Court's uh, decision that there were four MPs that were ineligible at the 2016 election. And it was, all, and then there was the budget replied by Bill Shorten. So it was almost like here today, gone tomorrow. And not many people are talking about the budget now. The interesting thing with budgets is that the current government and the previous government under Tony Abbott have not had a budget passed. What the strategy in the Senate has been is to let the appropriations through, the contracts, the salaries, the basic mechanics of government but to stop the policy issues. This has been very smart on Labor. Labor don't, of course, want to block a budget after 1975. Having seen the damage that that did, also, I think they've realised that it's much better to stop the budget but keep the budget that they've stopped in the hands of the government. It does much more damage and much more mischief, I think, There were two budget items that I noticed. They were actually in the budget papers, but they weren't really announced on the on the night. But they've come to light over the past few days. And that's the four hundred and forty four million dollar grant that was given to the Great Barrier Reef Foundation. And there's also another grant which seems to be going on for the next four years. It's a thirty million dollar grant to Foxtel. Now there were no tenders for this process. It was just pretty much a grant given to these two organisations. Now, $30 million, that's not, that's not much. We can accept that sort of process. But $444 million to an NGO, is this a little bit too much? In some of my roles, I'm applying for grants. And it's a rigorous process. You've got to put in everything. You've got to make predictions on stuff that you're not sure of. You have to dot every I and cross every T you've got to make sure that you fit the grant entirely. The grant is usually put out very specifically as to, you know, to to stop people 
applying for it who aren't eligible for it. I was actually really offended at the $30 million to Foxtel. Now, it's, it's, not a, it's not a lot of money, but Foxtel is a broadcaster and the government already funds two broadcasters in the ABC and SBS to promote women's sport. I don't have Foxtel, but I can't see what Foxtel brings to women's sport that the ABC and SBS already didn't. And I haven't seen promotions on their new women's sport program, and they do a lot of promotions. The Great Barrier Reef Foundation was a really interesting thing. I haven't seen a lot of information on who they are and what they stand for. How you can get these grants without tenders is beyond me. And I'm certainly not going for $30 million or $280 million tenders. You know, we, we go for $20,000 and sometimes less. One of the things with the public service is that not only must it be impartial, it must be seen to be impartial. John Lloyd with the IPA is another symptom of this in, in that the government is just giving money out to its friends. It's putting its friends into huge positions. This has been probably since the Hawke and Keating government pushed this way a little bit. And Hawke was open in his frustration with how he had to select cabinets, saying once that he'd prefer the American system where you could bring in people from outside to fill your cabinet positions. But certainly until really Tony Abbott, blatant appointments were avoided as best as possible. And there was often a long massaging period and at least the, the appearance of some form of due process to give their mates the job. New South Wales famously brought down Nick Greiner for putting Terry Metherall as the head of the EPA. ICAC found that that was corrupt. Greiner was later, of course, cleared by the High Court. But it, it was a very telling action that, you know, not only must you be impartial, you must be seen to be impartial. They're not really being seen to be impartial. Channel 31 would have loved I'm guessing $20 million or $30 million um, rather than skating on the thin, thin air, NITV. You know, these are, let alone the ABC or, or SBS. Because the community television network was closed down by Malcolm Turnbull and there's quite a few factors to take into account here. So $444 million, that is, that's not chicken feed, that's actually quite a lot of money. $30 million, well, that's still, that's still quite, a, quite a bit. But as I mentioned before, within the government context, it's not substantial. But just when we look at what else was in the budget paper, the ABC has received effectively an $84 million cutback and Foxtel is receiving a $30 million grant. So it could possibly be a situation where the government wants to privatise the ABC, but they want to nationalise Foxtel. I think that's the way that it's working. Anecdotal evidence suggests that Foxtel is in a lot of trouble. A friend of mine wanted to cancel his Foxtel because he was sick of the programming and he, he could spend his money elsewhere. They talked them into um, taking a $5 holding, $5 a month holding over fee because they, they said lots of people are cancelling this. We're trying to keep people in. They're basically almost giving Foxtel away at the moment with very generous entry fee. Of course, Foxtel suits the government. There's a lot of programs on it that promote the government's views in a way that is more congenial to the government than, say, the ABC or even 9 or 7 or 10. And it's not really about the, the number of viewers. It is about the message you can get out. It's like the newspapers a damaging headline will be seen by more people than the detailed story that 
questions that headline. Yeah, so it is a an issue that we have to keep monitoring. So there have been quite a few requests for that grant of $30 million to Foxtel that we need to find out more information about that. The Minister for Communications, Mitch Firefield, he has not been very forthcoming at all. So I think we need to keep watching this space. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen through SoundCloud and YouTube, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, we assess the UN Human Rights Council investigation of Israel's actions at the Gaza Strip and why Australia has voted against it. border, Palestinians have been protesting for seven weeks against Israel's human rights abuses. 62 Palestinians were killed and many other thousands have been injured by the Israeli army. As a result, the UN Human Rights Council, and Australia is a member of this, they called for an independent international commission of inquiry. And that's the UN Human Rights Council's highest level of investigation. Now, there were 47 members of the council and they wanted to establish an inquiry that looks at the facts and circumstances and looking at the alleged violations and abuses, including those that may amount to war crimes and to identify those responsible. As I mentioned, there were 47 members, 29 voted in favour of the resolution, 14 abstained, but there were two countries that voted against, the United States and Australia. Now, why did Australia vote against this inquiry? It just seems to be a very, very straightforward inquiry. Whenever you talk about the Middle East, there's a whole lot of subtleties and nuances and and internal issues that make it more complicated than it seems on the surface. One way we could go with this is that Australia is trying to keep in favour with the United States, seeing the current policy is to see the United States as the future of Australian protection. Australia has always preferred to cling to large powers such as, well, the UK. When the UK falls out of favour after World War I, really, but World War II is when it, it seems to have happened, Australia turns to the United States all the way with LBJ. Because of the way our economy has been traditionally set up, Australia needs powerful friends. So I think that's part of it. The United States votes no, so Australia votes no as as a show of solidarity. So would you say that 
Australia diplomatically and militarily looks to the United States as a partner, but looks to China as an economic partner because China abstained in this process and Australia didn't. I think that's right. I think China is happy for Australia to vote whatever way it likes, provided the economic ties remain clear. Underneath this, too, we have the issues in the Middle East. It's all to do with American and Western access to oil. Israel is a very handy country to have a strong ally in the Middle East. Now, I'm not going into the rights and wrongs of the formation of Israel as a, as a country. I, I think there's a lot of very great things with Israel. I think there's a lot of very problematic things. I think, I think to a lot of the criticism of Israel as a country really goes down to the criticism of the current government of the day. Israel is a country of tens of millions of people, all of whom have different opinions, some of whom very much support the current Palestinian policy, others who disagree with it. At this stage, it seems like it's a majority of people who are in favour of it, but that also seems to be changing. The Israel-Palestinian conflict is incredibly complicated, and we could probably spend the rest of the year discussing it. But there's quite a few factors that did come into this announcement. My th thinking was that it's probably based around the, re the recent defence deals that have been made between Australia and Israel. So the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, he visited Australia early in 2017. Malcolm Turnbull went to Israel in October 2017 to sign a deal as well. So it's a defence deal to improve the defence imports and export trade between the two countries. And this dovetails into the Minister for Defence, Christopher Pine. Last year, he said that he wanted Australia to be in the top 10 of military exporters around the world. I think there's a few other things going on here other than what is actually happening on the ground in, in Palestine. And Julie Bishop, she mentioned that Australia was voting against it because they didn't agree with the wording of the resolution and they believe that the inquiry had already been prejudged. Now, I'm not sure if that's entirely the case, but there has been criticism of the United Nations Human Rights Council. The membership is 47, as I mentioned before, but there's quite a few countries on that list that have got very, very poor human rights records as well. All politics is local, and there's a lot of pro-Israeli people in the, in the Liberal Party. Some of it's pure religious fervor in that people have read the Bible and believe that the formation of Israel fulfills biblical prophecy leading to the last days and the rapture and all of that. Others are very much in favor of a Jewish homeland for political and social reasons and, and, and uh, humanitarian reasons. Others just like the fact that it breaks up the perceived demographics of the Middle East by having a non-Muslim government in the Middle East uh, that makes things better. Australia's voting no will come back to bite it because I also think that opinions are changing. A lot of people I've spoken to with a, with a, with a very vested interest, Palestinian people, Lebanese people, have said the only real solution is to have the two states with borders. You can't have this integration at this point. It seems to me that Australia's pushing for what I think will be an unsustainable model of Israeli domination over the, the, the old Palestinian state for a whole range of international reasons, but for a whole range of local reasons as well.
and and that can be a very dangerous and short term and hence short short lived approach that can come back to bite you in ways that you don't expect. And the other factor the the foreign minister Julie Bishop kept on um, forcing was the idea of uh, Hamas and its its role in the political events and military events in the in the Gaza Strip. Now Hamas is the Palestinian resistance movement. It was formed during the first intifada back in 1987. It's considered to be a resistance movement by the Palestinian people and many people in the Arab world. In the US, Israel and the European Union, it's regarded as a terrorist organisation. So it's it's difficult to know which way to go with this. But I think the most obvious thing is that there were a lot of civilians that, that were killed. There were a lot of civilians that were injured as well, I think it's probably best to get to an inquiry and find out exactly what happened. And that's the best way forward. I think I think so. It, uh, the other thing I think we need to remember is that the Netanyahu government, particularly Netanyahu himself, is under a massive corruption cloud. Uh, a prominent Australian businessman had to spend, has, and I think still basically lives out of on his yacht in international waters because of his too close ties to Netanyahu. Israeli police have been investigating Netanyahu for 18 months in a deep and complex bribery and corruption scandal, which doesn't bode well, again, for people supporting these types of policies. It, it is possible that he will end up in jail along with the people he's been dealing with. And again, that goes back to my point of not every Israeli citizen supports the government. And a lot of criticism points Israel as this one country where 100% of the people think 100% the same way. As for Hamas and a terrorist organization, it's a complex question. Ask any Northern Irish Catholic who was in Northern Ireland in the 1970s if the IRA was a terrorist organization or any member of the French resistance, if the French resistance was a terrorist organization. From the other side, they definitely were. But from within, they were freedom fighters. And again, only an inquiry, a proper independent international inquiry will be able to sort this out. The other factor is probably to look closer at home as well, as far as Australia's vote against the inquiry. Anthony Albanese, he couldn't understand why the government voted against it. But I think there might also be factors involved in the seat of Wentworth, which is Malcolm Turnbull's local seat. He's actually got a large right-wing pro-Israel community in his electorate. Would this be influencing the government's decision on these matters? It seems to me that the government ministers spend a lot of time trying to appease their seats. I'm not quite sure how much risk Mr Turnbull is at losing his seat in the next election. But certainly the recent spectre of John Howard in Benelong in 2007 would weigh heavily on his mind. Well, Malcolm Turnbull does have form because back in 2003 when he entered Parliament, this was in a pre-selection battle against the sitting Liberal member, Peter King. Mm -hmm. The Sydney Peace Prize in that year was awarded to Hanan Ashrawi. So she's a Palestinian academic and activist, and he completely besmirched the reputation of Ms. Ashrawi at the time, and it was all to lobby the predominantly Israeli pre-selectors in that seat. So he got his way in that particular year. So 15 years later, I don't think there's a possibility of him losing the seat, but you never know what could happen in a general election. And 
I think he's probably ensuring his own seat, but there's a whole lot of factors that are coming into play within this decision. And I think the other thing with Malcolm is his poor, or is the perception of his poor political judgment, that he seems to always make the wrong decision at crucial times. And I think that may become a factor moving forward for a lot of this stuff. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, listen through SoundCloud and YouTube, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, here's Australia going to the polls this year. Is Australia going to the polls this year? The next general election can be held as late as May 2019, but can be held as early as August 2018. That's just a few months away. The government has been way behind in the polls since August 2016. That's almost two years. But there has been a slight narrowing in the polls in the past month. And there's also a series of five by-elections coming up. So it really might be a case this time around of voting often and voting early. But David, how likely are we to see an early election this year? Again, it it goes down to Malcolm's judgment, which is patchy. Early elections are always a difficult thing. Now, the Reachtel poll saw a bit of a narrowing, but Reachtel tends always to be an outlier. And of course, the best way to read polls is not to look at them every week and measure the, you know, one and two percent swings each way. It is to do what people like William Bowe, the poll bludger, or uh, Possum Comitatus, both of whom I think work for Crikey, and they collect all the polls, graph them out, and look at the trends over months. Malcolm McCarris did this as well. News Poll sends warning shots on occasion. I don't think they fudge the numbers that badly, but they tend towards the LNP anyway, or at least they tend towards the non-Labor side of, uh, of politics, but they have a fairly consistent methodology the Fairfax-Ipsos poll, same, have a fairly consistent methodology. And where the numbers differ, of course, is where you get differences in sample sizes, which is why you have to group them all, track them all. And it's not looking good. If the polls are accurate over the long term, we could be looking at an, a large defeat for the government, probably a landslide and even possibly a total annihilation heading back to elections like the 43 election and uh, the 29 election in, in terms of, and even 96, you know, I think they'll be wishing for a result like 96. It'll be somewhere like that. I don't think they can win. So do you go early and rip the Band-Aid off and save as many of your colleagues as you can and, and hope things improve, which they're not going to? They would have improved by now. He's faced with Hobson's choice here. Well, it is a vexed question because the... Governments will always say, well, we are not governed by polls, but of, of course they look at the polls. They, that's how they decide whether they go early or hang on to government for as long as possible. It's like a report card every couple of weeks as far as news poll goes, or Ipsos is every, every month. That gives them a report card, and they do their own internal polling as well to see how they're travelling. Malcolm Turnbull, for 
much of the past year, whenever he has been asked about when the next election will be held, he's been very consistent. He's always said it's going to be held in the first half of 2019. But that can be a little bit of bluff and bluster. I cannot believe that if their polls were very favourable at the moment that they wouldn't go to an election. Normally, the conventional wisdom is that a government will go to an election when they think they are likely to win. But I think in this case, there's a reverse of that that's happening. The government will go when they are less likely to lose. As, and that brings up your point before, minimising the damage and even the, the small chance of actually being able to get a victory. And there's another cliche out there, and there's only one poll that counts, and that's on election day. You only need the one seat. If you get two-seat majority, one goes to the speaker, you're back in government. And from there, you can, you can work. I think the other thing, too, is that people are sniffing around the job. Malcolm has not overly impressed, particularly the right wing of the party who put him in reluctantly when they found that Tony Abbott was not going to win the next election and was actually a a hindrance. They reluctantly put the more moderate Malcolm Turnbull in, who has then spent his time trying to keep them on side. And yet it, it doesn't matter what he does. They still hammer him. The rumour is is that Julie Bishop is sniffing around. She's been, what, deputy three times and that she thinks it's her time to be leader. The rumour is Peter Dutton is sniffing around, partly to shore up his own seat, get that three or four point bump that being leader of the party gives you, which would make his seat still not a safe seat, but it would clear him of that one and a half percent swing that GetUp will probably achieve in the next election. It also gets down to the psychology of the Prime Minister as well and how they're travelling, what's happening around them as far as leadership speculation is concerned or other contenders or possibly former Prime Ministers. There's other factors that come into play as well. Like, is it a matter of going early so that you can improve your chances of winning or, as I mentioned before, reduce your chances of losing? Or do you just hang on to the job for as long as possible so that you remain Prime Minister. The longer you're in, there's external events that may influence the world of Australian politics as well. So we're never sure what will happen around the corner. As I mentioned before, there has been a slight narrowing of the polls over the past month. What happens if they start to expand again and go out? So will that force his decision to think things are starting to move against us now? Best to go to an early election. And this is always in the minds of the Prime Minister. When uh, Menzies retired, he said to Harold Holt, look after Artie, talking about Arthur Colwell, because Colwell, they knew that Colwell couldn't beat the Liberal Party. If the younger, more charismatic Gough Whitlam was to get in, they knew they were in trouble. And that, in fact, turned to be the case. Whitlam loses 69, but wins 72, both not by much, interestingly enough. Bill Hayden being dumped as opposition leader while Malcolm Fraser was driving to the Governor General to call an election for the much more popular and charismatic and possibly more capable Bob Hawke. Now, Bill Shorten certainly has impressed people on a personal level. When they've met him, when they've gone to those town hall meetings he does, people have come out very impressed. He's got a media that doesn't like him, a mainstream media that doesn't like him. And it seems to me that there is a mistrust of of Shorten in the general public, probably because of his roles in forming numbers in the rolling of both Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard, and then, of course, in him getting through. I wonder what Malcolm 
both men seem to get on, at least on a very professional level. They don't slag each other off at all. And when they meet each other, they seem very pleasant to each other. Well, my feeling is that it's very similar to the relationship between former Prime Minister Paul Keating and the opposition leader of the time, John Hewson. They got on remarkably well on a personal level, but in the field of politics, there's no favours in uh, politics. So they were at war with each other on a constant basis. And Paul Keating actually apologised to John Hewson after the famous 1993 election. He said, sorry, mate, that's how politics operates. And- yeah, exactly. And, and that's really as it should be. If, if you really care about this stuff, you, you want passionate and driven politicians to sell those policies and to and to implement those policies and to oppose those policies that's where good government starts to come in malcolm turnbull's career has been a litany of failure in many ways which is not thing to say about a prime minister who's worth 200 million dollars he loses the republic referendum in 1999 because he was able to be wedged by the monarchists who pointed out well what model are we using here is it a model that the people want or not? And that little bit of doubt, which he couldn't manage because he couldn't manage the various factions. Godwin Gretsch and Utegate, which turned out to be a deeply humiliating experience for him. And let, let us give credit where it's due. That would have finished probably 99.9% of other political careers completely. And he was able to hold on and come back as prime minister. On and on it goes. Well, one other factor that we do need to take into account is the wounded ex-leader. So within the Liberal and National Party, there are actually two former leaders that are still within Parliament, and that's Tony Abbott. He was the Prime Minister at the time that Malcolm Turnbull rolled him, and Barnaby Joyce, who was the leader of the National Party and also the Deputy Prime Minister. He was rolled in a number of different issues that related to travel expenses and also the citizenship debacle that happened last year. So... My feeling is that these two characters are causing trouble for Malcolm Turnbull as well. One thing Tony Abbott does is win. What he wins is a whole other question, and whether it's worth it is a whole other question. But he does not take defeat uh, lightly, and he does not like defeat. And his time as opposition leader, a lot of people praise. I thought he was a terrible opposition leader, actually. There was no vision for what you would do otherwise. And in fact, on a few occasions, he said, we're absolutely in lockstep with the government on education, for example. And it turned out he wasn't at all. He just said it so he could win. He's thrown a few bombs into the parliament uh, the other day, of course, saying AGL is un-Australian by not buying the Liddell plant and it's just going to force electricity prices up, which is contrary to all other evidence uh, about why AGL might not want to buy a plant that's past its use-by date by about five years and is really worthless and doesn't actually help the grid at all. But certainly that doesn't look good for Malcolm. Tony, I think, will just keep punching away till he or one of his colleagues gets back in. Let's be absolutely fair here too. Tony did win an election and he won it with a lot of seats. I think he won more seats than John Howard ever won in terms of the majority. The fact that the second he was in, people realised they didn't like him. Well, it also gets back to your comment about what is winning in politics all about. We may differ on this, but I think he was actually a, a very effective opposition leader if your sole goal from opposition is to get into government. 
But then the issue is, well, what do you do when you get that prize? And Tony Abbott virtually did nothing as the Prime Minister. And my feeling is that Malcolm Turnbull is almost continuing in that legacy. Like, he's not really his own Prime Minister because, sure, he did win the election in 2016, but it was just by a bare majority. He lost 15 seats, the 15 seats that Tony Abbott acquired from opposition. So I get the sense, too, that Tony would rather lose the election if it meant bringing Malcolm down. Now, they've known each other since university. I don't know if they secretly like each other or really can't stand each other or if it's the usual flux of relationships in politics. One week, best friends. Next week, worst enemies. Paul Keating said, if you want a friend in politics, get a dog. I think Malcolm is learning that the very hard way, if he didn't already know it. I think Tony probably has one of the biggest kennels in town. I think what he is also quite good at is uh, keeping the loyalty of those who agree with him, which isn't many, but it's enough to make a rather loud noise in a government that sometimes struggles to get its message out and to appear unified. So we've actually gone through quite a lot this week as far as Australian politics are concerned. So in a nutshell, early election or not an early election? I think early, but it I think it'll be closer to November. I'm penciling in August and we can discuss this during our next podcast. So that's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. We produce the program every month and you can continue the conversation at our website, newpolitics.com.au. I'm Eddie Djokovic and goodbye to our listeners. And I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next month.